Hey folks, and welcome to the second episode of Introduction to Sociology COVID-19 Edition. My name is Matthew King, and I am here with my best friend and colleague, Horizon. Hey everyone, welcome. We are super excited to bring you a second episode. Yeah, let's get started. Before we begin, though, I just want to say that today, Horizon and I are going to be talking about an important but challenging topic gender inequality. I want you all to remember to practice self-care as you're listening to this episode. We'll be talking about difficult topics like rape and domestic violence. Please take care of yourselves while you're listening to this. One of my favorite parts of an audio medium is that you can pause it, walk away, and come back at any time to finish. If you feel overcome with emotions, just pause it, walk away, and you can come back at any time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is so important. I know that I have talked to my students about this, Matt, and I'm sure you have as well. Um, but sociology isn't always, and I might even challenge more often than not, it isn't rainbows and butterflies. We are often engaging in um, difficult subject matters. Um, a lot of you guys ask questions about stratification. It's hard to talk about uh, inequality. It is hard to talk about gender inequality. Um, it's difficult to talk about ideas that don't necessarily line up with your worldview. Um, so yes, please practice self-care. Matt makes a great point. You can pause this, walk away, and come back when you're ready. And with that being said, I'm just going to outline a little bit about what we'll be talking about. Uh, we are going to address some of your questions, not all of them. We have a ton of students. So um, some of these may be yours. They might not be. But thank you, everyone, who uh, added to um, the conversation. So if you guys are wanting to take notes, I'm just going to give you a quick outline. Uh, if you have your paper, if you're on your laptop, feel free to just make some headers of the next few subjects, and then we can go back and fill them in together. So to start, we're going to talk about the differences between sex and gender. So you might put a uh, title that just says sex and gender. Let's move on. Gender socialization. We're going to go into what it means to do gender, doing gender, gender systems. We'll discuss gender and education. Inequality in the workplace. We will discuss gender and family, media representation, violence against women, feminist theory. This is so much information. Uh, and from here, we're going to go and talk about global inequality. Um, while the majority of this episode is going to talk about gender inequality, it is important that we recognize global inequality as well. And there are connections between the two. So the classification of countries, uh, we'll talk about the East and West dichotomy, colonialism, imperialism, um, outsourcing, outsourcing patriarchy, uh, and the veil. So that is a lot of information that we are going to do our best to provide you, um, again, in an engaging way. It's going to be a dialogue. And just recognize that yeah, there's a lot here and we know this. So just hang in there with us um, and let's get started by addressing 
a few of the questions that you all submitted. Yeah, let's go ahead and start with one of my students who, of course, we're not going to use any kind of names, but they ask, in your discussion, you mentioned that this generation of children are not likely going to be better off than our parents were. What sort of consequences do you think that that will have on them socially? Horizon, what do you think? Yeah, I think this is a good question. So shout out to nameless student. One of the things that Matt and I kind of discussed prior to starting this episode was that, uh, and maybe we're even a little bit on different sides of this conversation, uh, and that is I anticipate that that this generation, right? So when we're talking about this generation, believe it or not, we are talking about the majority of youth students, right? If you are in that 18 to 22-year-old range, this is really uh, that generation that we're discussing here. Um, And one of the consequences that I anticipate not being better off than um, our parents were is going to come with this inability. um, And we'll get into this a little bit later. I have a student who asked about conspicuous consumption. And this is where we're going to see that, right? So you, we will have this inability to uh, navigate or not be participants of conspicuous consumption. That is this idea of needing more, buying things that we don't have resources, resources for, et cetera. Um, so what I think is going to happen is that uh, because technology is going to continue advancing, um, we will continue to see those purchases of needing the best, of having the best, of wanting the best. Um, and like, I am a total, like, I am not tech savvy by any means, but I love when I can buy the newest phone. I usually try to wait a couple years But then when I buy a new phone, I just typically end up with the most updated version with like the most recent released item. Um, And when we don't have that money and society is also allowing us to participate in it by saying, great, here's your $1,000 phone. You can make payments on it, but you're about to be spending money on the same phone for several years before it actually becomes quote unquote yours. So that's what I'm thinking is going to be one of the big consequences of this generation not being better off than our parents. What about you, Matt? I think I actually fall on the opposite side of that spectrum in that, yeah, we're going to see a lot of us buying the newest smartphones. But when it comes to like clothing and uh, food, I really see us leaning more toward uh, cheaper stuff, right? So Mm -hmm. the rise of thrift stores have been huge over the past couple years, especially after uh, Macklemore's big release. It is Macklemore, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Macklemore's big release thrift shop came out buying these clothes secondhand. And I think it might not be who you were as much as does this actually fit my style? So I I don't know. It's going to be an interesting thing to see. Uh, really, yeah, our, we are the first generation who are going to be worse off than our parents. So, yeah. yeah. A great question. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Horizon, how does a person's social class impact their access to medical care 
nutrition, and overall life expectancy. You want to throw some input this, on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really good question to consider. Really, what we're looking at here is that um, our social class obviously infects, infects, <laughs> affects <laughs> um, what I went for impact and effect. So that's where we get infects. Um, I like to make up words on the spot. So there you go, students. Uh, so here's the deal. Um, a person's social class often impacts their access to these things, medical care, nutrition, and life expectancy, really in the biggest way of having access to these items. And so what we see here is depending on your work, oftentimes we don't have, like your job isn't going to, in a lot of ways, right? Unless uh, we're looking at like middle to upper class, often low income jobs don't offer medical care. So a couple of things, you either have inadequate medical care through state services, uh, or you don't have medical care at all because the cost of medical care or to like purchase medical care through your employer is going to exceed um, what you can actually give to that. Uh, we also think about nutrition and the fact that I'm sure a lot of you have heard of something called food deserts, right? So this is the inability to have close access to um, produce, so vegetables, fruits, um, those kind of items. Uh, and so we see a decrease in nutrition, which also sees an increase of eating at fast food restaurants, right? So what we know often in uh, lower class statuses, lower class families, uh, what we recognize is that it is relatively cheap for someone to go and buy 12 cheeseburgers from McDonald's, fries and $1 beverages. Great, you can take that home and feed your family and maybe you can feed your whole family for 15 bucks. But if we are at a grocery store, then you're looking for a meat, um, you're looking for that high protein, you're looking for a starch, you're looking for a vegetable to create uh, this quote-unquote well-balanced meal. And that's a lot of work if you are working long hours. It's a lot of work if you don't live close to a grocery store that has these, um, these resources. Uh, and obviously, with a lack of medical care and poor nutrition, we do see a decrease in life expectancy. Um, if all we're living off of is cheeseburgers, um, if we don't have access to exercise, uh, which comes with being able to afford a gym membership or being raised in a way that encourages uh, and socializes you to be outdoors, um, which in a lot of places, right, if we think about living uh, in downtown areas, um, really dense spaces, we're not exposed to mountains, we're not exposed to hiking trails, etc. Uh, so this is really, uh, there's a lot of impact on on social class with accessibility to these things. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks so much for that. I really don't have any input. I think you really covered all the bases there. Great. Um, what do you think of cultures and societies across the world viewing conspicuous consumption? And how does this idea of conspicuous consumption affect other countries around the world. Yeah, so I, I do believe this is something we're probably navigating um, in, in a, ver a variety of ways. 
across cultures. Uh, and that just is, you know, I have had, I think this is one of my students' questions. Um, and I think really what we're seeing is that other cultures and societies have their own viewpoints of what this means, right? So we all attach, you know, so for the United States, like, yes, there's this attachment to a, a nice house, to a nice car, to having your fancy phone with a smartwatch, right? Like these are things that play into our, our ways of consumption. And so what we need to do is just look across cultures and see and see that divide. Uh, I know as a student, I remember walking downtown here in Spokane actually and um, having a professor tell me like we were in this conversation where I was looking at these houses that had boarded windows up but there were Ferraris in the front yard it wasn't a Ferrari I don't remember what it was but it was a fancy car right um, and the question is like why do we see boarded windows but fancy cars why do we see 60 inch TVs but someone needing uh, food stamps like what what are these things and this is it there's a level of status that we anticipate and that we internalize for ourselves and of expectations of people will look to me as cool I will have higher status as we talked about last week if um, people see that I have a nice car that I'm wearing a Rolex which I don't even know if you guys know what a Rolex is um, if you, you know, so just this idea of consumerism, that uh, this consumption piece. And so it does affect us all. Um, I think I don't want to speak to how it directly is going to affect other cultures and societies, but we all have our ways. Uh, so think about how you internalize this viewpoint, right? Like how are you influenced by cons conspicuous consumption and then consider, consider that and know that someone else for maybe the same reasons or for maybe other reasons are experiencing the same pressure, the same uh, need of consumption. Do you have anything else to add to that, Matt? Uh, yeah, the, really the only thing I want to add to it is this idea that America, we are an imperialist society, right? We are an imperialist country. Our ideas are across the world, right? Uh, we constantly want other countries to think like us. And so I do think in a way it does, maybe not to the same extent, of course, I can't speak to any specific countries, but we have this overarching ideology that's reaching other cultures and just through what they see on tv right american tv or american movies uh mm. it's all feeding this idea of consumption and i need to have something better so matt how does the american dream play into stratification in the united states uh, and then the second part of this question is, do you think that the American dream, is it all possible or is this just a myth? This is a phenomenal question. And I actually, a student asked me this last semester and uh, I hated myself for the response I gave them. Mm. 
I do want to say, I think, at least my personal experience, is that the American dream really is the biggest lie we're told as So it's a myth. Yes, it's absolutely a myth. Um, Tell me more. We we have this idea in our head that if we work hard, maybe we'll get somewhere, right? Mm. Um, But that's really not how it is. People of different racial and ethnic groups have huge uh, barriers blocking their way. As we've talked a little bit during the last uh, episode, we talked about the gender differentiation in uh, employment. And we'll talk about next week some of the racial barriers that also uh, stop people from getting this American dream. My favorite saying is that white picket fence and two and a half kids, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of the ideal American. And I don't think it's real, especially when we're doing worse than our parents are. Yeah, right? I think that's um, a really good point. Do you have anything to add on it? What do you think? Yeah, no, you know, I think that uh, I feel the same. I think it is a myth. And part of my understanding of this um, as a woman of color I know that like the classic American dream um, isn't something that I reach for or that I agree with existing, you know, like you say, like this ideal, right? White picket fence, two and a half kids. Great. Well, some people don't want two and a half kids, so they don't get the dream if they don't want kids. Um, That dream isn't accessible to them if they don't want kids. That dream isn't accessible to the single woman or the woman who is in charge of a company uh, because she's not below her spouse, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you really sum it up well. And so I think what our students need to um, recognize is that uh, the American dream, quote unquote, has to vary. And while there is an expectation or like this overarching societal norm of what American dream is, uh, it is often inaccurate. Um, and what we don't recognize is that so often this American dream is only accessible for a few. Uh, so yeah, uh, here's another- I just wanna add one thing real quick. It's not impossible, right? We, we see that it's not impossible. We have uh, people like Barack Obama, Oprah Winfrey, you know, these big names. But these are not the rule. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? It's the exception. It's the exception, not the rule. Thank you. These people, that's one of the things that is very problematic about making generalizations and even like focusing on just the individual is there, of course, is an exception to every rule. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So we can point we can point to multiple different people who have broken this rule through hard work, yeah. But at the same time, it the rule exists. For most people, the American dream is not reachable. Even should this American dream exist at all, that's a question for another day. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um and kind of, I guess, maybe in some way leads us into our next question, uh, which is what exactly? Uh, So last week, Matt and I kind of discussed a good home and a student asks, what exactly was meant by a good home during the section on social mobility? 
isn't solely relating to how well off one's family is, or are there other factors contributing? I think this is a multi-pronged thing. Um, When it comes to what a good home is, a lot of it does have to do with the social economic status that a person has. If you're in a quote-unquote good home, you have more likely, you have a, a better ability to get specific help, right? Yeah. So if you're in a rich family or a better off family, you have access to tutors. Mm-hmm. You have, I think for me, one of the biggest things that I saw that we forgot to talk about is just how to navigate certain spaces. I'm the first one in my family to have gotten a bachelor's degree and definitely the first one to have a master's degree. Mm, Yeah. And so for me, I had no idea how to navigate what it means to go to college. I had no idea what path to take. I would consider myself being raised in a good home. I love my mom. She took good care of us, but I still had I was not in the same spot that many people who have already had uh, their knowledge to navigate certain spaces because of where their parents were. Do you have anything to add to that? What do you think is a good home? Uh, No, Matt, I think you have summed up really well what a good home means. I think it really is just a matter of what your experience is in a good home, right? You're saying, You don't have to have everything in the world for it to be a good home, but you can also recognize the points where others might look and have a different viewpoint on a good home. So good job there. Um, So now that we have kind of addressed some of those questions and hopefully it brought clarity, uh, we will move into the actual meat of this episode, which is uh, global and gender inequality. We're going to lead with gender inequality. Uh, And then just again, if you guys need to step away, feel free to do that. Uh, And I think this is a good point, right? So I just used the phrase, you guys. Um, When I say you guys, it really is inclusive. I am not speaking just to men. Um, Matt likes to say folks. Uh, I oftentimes will say y'all or you all. Uh, And this is really, I think both of us have kind of grown to speak in a way that allows inclusivity in conversation, which means not saying some phrases, right? Like sometimes you guys uh, might reference just men uh, and that is never the intention. So know that if you hear that, our, um, our intentions obviously are to be inclusive. And so we often have to do um, our own work. Uh, we like to speak on like, quote unquote, the work we have to do. And that is just uh, remaining aware of our language and the use of terminology. So we're not perfect, uh, but we do try to navigate these matters gently, intentionally, but also honestly. So with that, uh, let's talk a little bit about sex and gender. Sex, S-E-X, not sexual intercourse, but rather the biological category of an individual. We look at XX and XY chromosomes are what we know naturally to be of male, quote unquote, and female. Uh, And then 
sometimes we experience or are born with XXY or XYY, which can occur, but they rarely do. And so that is really this identity of sex as a biological category. Uh, We also look at hormones. So some of this information is really just to kind of preface uh, further and to lead us into this gender idea. Uh, So sex, XY, XXXY chromosomes. And then if we drop down, we can look into some things uh, to our hormones, right? So estrogen, testosterone, uh, everyone has both. Uh, but primarily we associate estrogen in women, testosterone in men. So Matt, how important do you think biology is in explaining behavioral differences? To be completely honest, I completely disagree with biology having anything to do with behavior. Ooh, okay. I come... Of course, we're both sociologists, but I I tend to fall on the social constructionist side more and that it's really not about what biology we have, but how we were raised, how we were socialized and uh, the culture around us that's telling us what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. And I really don't think it has anything to do with biology. Okay. Yeah. What about you? How do you feel about it? Yeah. So I often, I very much fall in a kind of nature versus nurture. I think there are both, I think uh, the hormone aspect of it uh, kind of lends us towards more masculine, what might be considered more masculine behaviors versus more feminine behaviors. And we can talk about the hormones of masculine physical attributes versus female attributes, penis, vagina, breasts, pecs, et cetera, et cetera, more prominent cheekbones. So I do think that biology does have something to do with, with sex versus gender. And really we'll get into a little more about this gender piece, but also I very much believe um, that socialization is one of the highest influences of what it means to be man or woman. Uh, and in saying this, this I do want you all to recognize, I know uh, for any of our students, and I anticipate for mine, this is a tough subject. Um, and so I, I can't help but pause to reiterate the importance um, of you taking time to step away uh, as you need. And also, I would encourage you to further seek your own understanding. Use your textbook and see what your textbook says. Um, I have a book that isn't in eyesight on my bookshelf to recommend to you all. Um, but in the future, after you guys listen to this, feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, of some recommendations if you guys want to further dive into this idea of gender uh, versus sex. So keep that in mind. Um, So I just want to interject real quick. And um, my idea on sex and gender, it's very, this is coming after a long time of thinking through this. We, We definitely don't expect you to agree with us. Not at all. If however you feel, that's on you. But my understanding and my feelings 
on sex and gender comes through three years at this point of really digesting and coming to terms with my understanding. It's not just, I'm definitely not trying to push my ideas onto you. I want to make sure that's clear. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And to know that your, your religious beliefs are going to influence oftentimes the way you view this. Uh, So yeah, I, all of this to say that we just really want you guys to be mindful. We are giving you information. Yes, there are bits, right? Like what is, what do I think to be true of sex versus gender and the influences of um, hormones, like actual biological things versus social constructs, right? So it's hard. I know for my students, I have a lot of health science majors uh, in my classroom right now. And so for them, they are going to see harder sciences here than, than the more social aspect of it. So all of this is just really to reiterate, it is our responsibility is to give you this information. Your responsibility is to take it, process it, continue to wrestle with it, uh, and then formulate your own understanding of these topics. And this goes beyond uh, this subject matter in and of itself. So with that in mind, as we look at estrogen and testosterone, uh, we then can view gender as a, it is a social category. So a couple of things to note here. Gender roles are learned through socialization, both early on and throughout life. So we think about uh, this early on, right? People throw gender reveal parties. I still don't know why, but it happens and they're cute and they're fun and we get to celebrate people and new babies in life. Um, But so gender roles really starts before you're ever born. That uh, ultrasound that oftentimes parents get that say, look, my baby has a penis. Look, my baby does not have a penis. Um, They have a vagina. This is the start of those points. Uh, The way we name our children, et cetera, et cetera, all part of the socialization. Um, And then we move into these ideas of pink versus blue, masculine versus feminine, Barbies versus trucks, short hair for boys, long hair for girls, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You, I don't think we actually have to dive into that. You guys recognize points of socialization uh, through gender. So um, varying social environments produce different versions of man versus woman. Um, A big example of this uh, might be you don't see a lot of men doing ballet. That's not quote-unquote, masculine. Um, You see boys encouraged to do sports. We see the responsibility of men to not cry or women to be highly sensitive. These are all ways in which environments produce different versions of man and woman. So in sports, we push boys to do more, to be more, to be stronger, to not give up, to fight, 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 fight. Whereas women were like, no, it's okay for you to quit. Like you don't have to do all of that, right? But you would never, oftentimes we don't hear men being told that they can quit or that they can give up. Um, And then, yeah, we'll drop into a little bit now about gender being socially constructed. So Matt, tell us more. Yeah, so gender, it's really this socially constructed idea Remember that differentiation between sex and gender, sex being biology, gender being really that social 
aspect of it. And I really want to start with the, uh, digging into socialization. Because gender is socially constructed, it's taught to us, especially from a very young age. So when we think of small children, we think of the toys that small children are given. And this is, you know, ranging from, say, two to six, seven. Uh, although it may not seem like it, different toys really do teach different things. So trucks, they're really good about teaching motor skills, not not driving skills, but like how to move. And when you're when you see a little kid running with a truck, it's really teaching them those motor skills. Yeah. And we give little gun, uh, little kids toy guns most of the time. This, I think, really feeds into the aggression that um, boys are taught from a young age, right? So when we think of what is stereotypically male, we think of them as stereotypically aggressive. Mm -hmm. And so we see this really being taught to our kids from a really young age. I'm not blaming aggression on guns. I'm not blaming guns for aggression, but it helps feed that. Uh, and then what about superheroes? We see superheroes feed into a solitary mindset. Mostly boys play with superheroes and it teaches them that one person can save the day, right? And so when we, us as men, when we get older, we start thinking, oh, I can do this alone. I don't need help. Needing help is seen as something more feminine. Again, I'm not blaming superheroes for any of this, but it's just, it represents part of that solitary thinking and how I'm going to save the world. Yeah, right? absolutely. I don't need help. Let's be clear. Um, Matt needs a lot of help, you guys. I Matt do needs need so much help. I, you have no idea. <laughs> I need so much help. Uh, but yeah. let's look at uh, girls. Girls really play with dolls. They they nurture their dolls. I can't really speak to this because I didn't play with dolls growing up. But they they nurture their dolls, and uh, they also tend to play dress up which yeah. this reinforces what it means to be beautiful. They dress up their dolls to look beautiful. We think of Barbie. She's super thin. Most Barbies are white, blonde, blue-eyed, um, non-sexual beings. And yeah. we, we learn that this is what is beautiful. I, I completely disagree with this idea that, that blonde hair, blue eyes, white, thin woman is the definition of beautiful, yeah, but absolutely. it's what is constantly uh, pushed in our heads. Sure. And lastly, uh, parents really feed into this. I they are consumers. They are consumers of, of this belief structure. Yeah. It, it's been fun to navigate with my uh, nieces and nephews. I'm going to take this a little personal real quick. Mm. Um, but I have two, two nieces that I really have bonded with and I, I have to stop myself from buying them anything pink or anything, uh, 
really feminine. I try mm-hmm. my hardest not to do that. I try and go more what's considered gender neutrals. So I go with like yellow, white, uh, kind of gender neutral colors just to not beat into this. You have to be a girly girl. Yeah, absolutely. But their parents and their grandparents, they really feed into this idea that there is a gender binary, which we'll get into here in a little while. But how often do we hear that idea that boys will be boys when yeah, boys this... are being loud and rambunctious? Sure. And this is this is such a point that I think um, that we we so um, subconsciously kind of internalize. Uh, and that is that, um, you know, and this really, and maybe we talk about, the, we'll talk about this later, but, um, you know, in, in the last to bring it to what a lot of you might know today and recognize today, um, the Me Too movement kind of comes up and a lot of this boys will be boys um, can be driven um, and like traced back to some of the same behavior, right? Is that boys will be boys. Therefore, they do not have to take ownership of their choices and the decisions that they make. Oh, that kid punched that other kid. Well, there's no consequence because boys will be boys and it's just what we expect from them. He yelled at his sister and boys will be boys. Well, great. There aren't consequences. Therefore, in 20 years, boys will be boys turns into I'm yelling at my spouse, right? And so there is this perpetuation of behavior that we socialize into, um, in this case, primarily in boys, that is so subconscious. It's just this thing. I don't, I don't know where it came from, um, but that we do absolutely recognize. But that there are there are points that this elementary, this adolescent thought and idea that we that we kind of just toss out there. Then oftentimes we see tracing it through um, to bigger milestones in their life. They're now a teenage boy getting into fights in school. They're now a young adult male not recognizing consent. They're now a married man not uh, respecting his spouse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So on, so goes. Um, so, yeah, I think this is something that we absolutely see uh, parents feeding into. Yeah, exactly. And one of this, this idea is we're constantly doing gender. Uh, when yeah. we say boys will be boys, it's your boys are doing specific things that fit into the masculine category. Yeah, and so absolutely. in this way, they are doing gender. Do you want to speak a little bit more on what doing gender means? Sure. And if any of you guys step into sociology further, uh, you'll hear more about this idea of doing gender. Uh, And really doing gender is more than simply a learned role um, while that is important. So when we think about a learned role, um, the classic uh, thoughts here are like girls do household cleaning, boys do strength-based like tasks, right? Girls fold laundry, they dust, they help learn how to cook dinner. Boys, they learn how to mow the lawn. They're responsible for taking out smelly garbage, et cetera, stuff like that. So those those are learned roles, um, but also it is something that is done 
um, that we do each day. So for myself, actually, I might be a terrible example. Um, but so a way in which gender is done is um, I do gender by putting on a dress. The day I, I see you in a dress, taking is, on... that would be, I don't think I've ever <laughs> seen that. That's actually probably true. Uh, that's not true. Uh, grad school graduation. One time I was in a dress that you probably saw me in a dress. Um, yeah, it's true. I don't wear a ton of dresses. I actually own more dresses than Matt's aware of you guys, but um, I haven't seen her yeah, closet. Right? I'm so sorry. I also don't wear high heels. I like you might never see me in high heels, but my wearing high heels is performance of gender. It is something that I am doing every day that allows me to live out my gender identity. Matt wears baseball caps or hats regularly. This might be a way that he accomplishes gender every day. Putting on his blue vans. Actually, are converse, they converse? Bright blue converse. Oops. He has a really nice pair of bright blue converse, right? Him putting on his converse, him throwing on his baseball cap of backwards. Course, Matt doesn't wear his cap forward. Yeah, but then we start talking about uh, appropriation and things get muddled and complicated there. Uh, we'll leave that for another day. But to see really that gender is something that we do. So take a moment and really just process through um, a way that you uh, do gender. So what is it that you are doing? I really wish I had that book, you guys. So what is it that you are doing that allows you to accomplish your gender identity every day? So it's simple, it's a little complicated, but really it is just this idea of it goes beyond a learned role, right? It's the things that we do, the things we put on, the way we behave, the way we interact that allows us to do gender. Um, so with that, we can uh, look at a couple of things uh, that we will talk about, which are gender systems, right? So we have a couple of gender systems. We have patriarchy, which refers to the gender system in societies where men are dominant. That is um, actually, I'm not going to get too ahead of, of uh, the rest of our time together, but um, really, so these gender systems are one, the patriarchy. And then we look at the second system of gender inequality, which refers to the difference in power, status, access, and choices between men and women. Um, really, a lot of this does come down to power. Gender inequality comes down to power, status, access, um, men making more money for the same job with the same degree, et cetera, which we talked a little bit about last week, right? Um, so Matt, can you just talk to us a little bit about gender and education? Yeah, so when it comes, even if we don't think about it, I know I tend to be, I, I've tried to be more reflexive when it comes to teaching and especially in education, we see the differential treatment between men and women. We do tend as teachers to give more attention and more space to men than we do women. This can be both positive and negative. If a man is more likely, we're more likely to give them more space to talk and 
if they are talking like in while the teacher is talking, we're more likely to call them out than we are for women. And when it comes to women, we tend to silence them. I definitely fall into this, even if I'm not trying to. I tend to ask men to explain their ideas more than I do when it comes to women. And you you may have seen this in class a little bit, but I'll be more likely to ask men to expand on their ideas more than I'll ask women. And this is a way of feeding this differential differential treatment in the classroom. And even though we're doing it at the college level, uh, this really does begin at the youngest time in the classroom. Mm, yeah. We see this anywhere from kindergarten all the way up to, like I said, college. And we see teachers choosing boys to be in more leadership positions, right? The line head, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about inequality at work, Horizon? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are, and, you know, really, like, I'm going to touch on this, and I'm probably going to go a little more quickly through it as I know that we have all experienced um, inequality at work, or at the very least, maybe we all haven't experienced inequality at work, but I do know that you guys are all aware of inequality in workspaces. So we're going to talk about it. It's going to be brief. Um, And so there are really jobs that are gender typed as quote unquote female are valued less and they pay less, right? So Again, I have already mentioned this. You could have the same degree. You could have the same um, everything about two applicants. Could be the very same besides the name being Susie and the name being Joseph, right? Great. Joseph is more likely to get hired because he's a Joseph and he's a dude and he has, you know, they're going to more likely pay him more, offer him the job. Um, And then... Uh, or we think of jobs that are gender typed as females being um, off the bat, like, and even so, even if we are people who do not want to buy into uh, gender ideologies, we do, right? So as a sociologist, I am aware of jobs that are gender typed as female. Um, I don't agree with them being exclusive to female roles. But when I think of the first thing that came to my mind, when I think of gender type jobs, I think secretary, I think um, anyone who is in an office space, I don't think I have ever seen a hotel employee. What do you call the people who clean your rooms? Maids. Mm, Yeah. See, and I don't even, but right. How often do you see a male maid? How often do you see a male in a hotel cleaning rooms? Not as often. There are jobs that we delegate uh, that we stereotype to be female roles. So oftentimes we see them as valued less and we see them being paid less. So there are gender gaps in earnings and we are closing these gender gaps, right? We often, I know you have all heard of gender gaps closing, but they still remain. So here are just a little bit of stats for you. Uh, Full-time employees, and this is going to be, I think I have this as female to male. So um, between 1970 and 2009, 62% Um, of jobs for women versus 82.1% for men. 
Um, hourly employees were at 64% for women and 79% for men. This is 1970 to 2008. Uh, and then in general for all employees, 46% for women and, and 61% for men. And this is between 1970 and 2008. Um, and then we talk about this informal structure, such as the glass ceiling um, and glass escalator, which reproduce gender inequality by favoring male employees. Uh, and then furthermore, we see sexual harassment that continues. Uh, it remains a way for men to dominate women in the workplace. And some of these things are really subtle, right? They don't exist um, completely outwardly. We make little comments here and there that you would never make to um, your boss or that you would never make to like another if if Matt is Matt's a good guy, you guys like I'm using him as an example, but really um, if Matt makes a like a snide sexual comment towards a female colleague of his, that's excused. Matt's never and maybe not as much anymore, but Matt would never do that to a male colleague. He wouldn't do it to a female colleague either. But this is the example, right? If a man makes a snide sexual remark, um, for example, if you hear a dude say, oh, like, you could make that skirt a little shorter. Great. Like Matt wouldn't tell a dude, hey, you should uh, really um, wear a v-neck that accentuates your collarbone or <laughs> I don't know, right? Um, kind of a poor example, but I think you guys get the point there. And we, we uh, those sexual harassment um, keep women silent oftentimes. And, and let me just say that this isn't completely inclusive. This narrative, we aren't discussing necessarily men harassing men in the workplace um, and stuff like that. But to know that those things also exist a little bit really about we're going to I'm going to touch on just briefly again about gender and the family. So there's this ongoing difficulty of balancing work and family uh, and this rests largely uh, on women. So a couple of things here. Managers see women as more tied to the family rather than work. So if a woman is up for a promotion to be a manager for her job, um, she might be asked what are the impacts of her family structure before they say, before they offer her the job. Do you have kids? Do you have other things that might pull you away? And so it affects women's abilities to get those responsible positions, such as a manager job. And then, so women continue to do a lot more housework than their spouses. We call this the second shift. There is a lovely book called The Second Shift by Arlie Hochschild, and she interviews um, her herself being uh, a woman who navigates the second shift. She was a professor um, and would take her child uh, to work and would nurse her kid and hold office hours uh, and really navigate being a full-time uh, and being a professor as well as a mom. And then you go home and oftentimes we see, we see this continue out, right? Like I just worked a full work day great, I need to go home because my kids need dinner. So I'm going to cook dinner. Maybe my husband comes home. Uh, he's maybe going to help, but more likely he's going to take that time to take a break, to change out of his clothes uh, into something more comfortable while a mom is still going from work, running to the grocery store, coming home to cook dinner. 
putting dinner on the table. In the process, she might be folding laundry. Uh, she's going to get her kiddos ready for bed. She'll bathe them. Um, we often see more moms tucking in their children versus dads. Um, again, which goes back into like the roles that we learn to do. Mothers are more quote unquote nurturing. So these are just how those things kind of play out and what makes the second shift um, so prominent that we see more often in women. And again, that is not inclusive of single dads, which we know happen. That is not inclusive of single moms either. But if we're looking at um, a unit, and even so, we can talk about same-sex couples. Uh, and these roles still tend to play out in uh, same-sex relationships as well. So just to keep that in mind. Uh, Matt, do you mind talking to us a little bit about the media representation that we see regarding gender? Yeah, um, as my students know, I love talking about the media. Um, spent a big portion of my life talking about uh, the media. And we really need a... He spent a big portion of his life talking. Yeah. yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm so mean. I'm no, sorry. I, I don't accept your apology. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but we should talk about the gender portrayal in movies and in TV shows. Ooh, let's do it. We see that women tend to be pictured as moms, wives, and princesses. Often when you look at watch TV, watch a movie, they're always in this role of uh, caretaking or needed to be uh, taken care of, not so much as uh, leaders in a workplace or being defined by their job. And even if they are, they're constantly looking for a man, right, to help take care of them. We see this all the time. I love uh, romantic comedies. Not going to lie, I'm going to be straight up about it. I love romantic comedies. Uh, I've been binge-watching it since I've been uh, stuck in quarantine. <laughs> but we see this all the time. It's the man who's supposed to to save the woman. And we see stereotypes in this media representation, if they're even there. But we see the stereotypes as a saint, right? Women are often seen as saintly creatures, meaning they're perfect, they're without flaws, or they're doing above and beyond. Or we see them, these next couple are going to be kind of uh, dirty, and I apologize. Which is why he's not making me read them, you guys. I don't have to talk about him because he knows I don't want to say the words. And I'm more than comfortable <laughs> saying these words. Um, <laughs> what words are they, Matt? We see uh, women being uh, shown as sluts. Ooh. Uh, but <laughs> slut, when I'm saying slut, it means like a promiscuous woman, right? Sleeping around, mm -hmm. doing everything uh just i'm gonna be frank to get it in Whoa. but it's this hypersexuality i guess is a better way of saying it and then we also see the bitch right um anytime that a woman's really in the role of a boss or as a leader over people she's often portrayed as a bitch an unlikable character who's mean to everybody, maybe sometimes 
it's because she needs to uh maybe she needs to bring out her uh, sexuality a little bit more i guess is a good way of saying that but you hate her right any woman that's put in power over men in movies is most likely going to be this bitch stereotype and again this is why i'm talking about it and not horizon (laughs) i don't mind saying it Um, but if women are represented in the media we see that they are not as represented as men this comes in all forms whether it's uh actors and actresses, directors, producers, they still more likely to be men than women. And even mm-hmm. less when it comes to women of color or non-binary or transgender people, right? We haven't really talked yeah. about them, but we will here in a little while. But women of color, trans people, and non-binary people tend to be left out even more than just women in general. Yeah, and I think, you know, we we see, we are starting to see just a little more of that representation over, over the last year, you know. Um, there's a whole section on Netflix of um, strong Black leads um, where you can pick from a variety of films that have, you know, and while we're talking specifically to women of color, but that we are seeing more of it, that's the point there is that and it's still disproportionate and it's still not acceptable. It's still not enough, but that perhaps we are moving in a direction where we might see an increase of uh, women in the media as well as women of color. Yeah. I, I do want to put a trigger warning on this next part. Uh, we are going to start talking about violence against women. So if you, yeah. again, if you need to walk away, please do. At any time, please stop this. Take care of yourself. But Horizon, what really is this problem of violence against women? Yeah, let is um, let let is let us discuss that just a little bit. Um, I do, you know, when when we discuss this idea of um, being triggered, um, if you think about like using a gun when you pull the trigger, it Uh, releases or activates something right you pull a trigger it releases a bullet Um, in this case you pull a trigger and it releases an emotion um, or a reflex to whatever it is you are discussing or experiencing right so in this case the gun here is violence against women Um, we will be pulling the trigger and talking about Um, different forms that we see across the world Uh, and so with that just know that these issues may ignite emotions that come up and so as Matt said yes be mindful Um, yes pay attention Um, but come back to it take the time and come back it's important and if it wasn't we would skip over it ourselves because it's hard Um, so just with that this This idea of violence against women is institutionalized Um, across the world. We can talk about just really basic ideas, right, of how hard it is for women to leave abusive relationships, how hard it is um, for people in general to step out of abusive relationships, toxic 
you know, we, we see physical abuse that happens uh, and you often hear people like, just leave them. Okay, well, it's not that easy. Um, I, I know that my class has had a few opportunities um, to talk in class about uh, abusive relationships. And so this is, these are just a few examples of those. We see um, foot binding in China that limits uh, women's ability to walk. We see um, dowry disputes in India. Uh, we see um, female genital mutilation in a lot of countries that happen. Yes, it's real. All of these things are, you know, we're speaking a little bit in extremes here. Of, um, but for what we view as extreme, this is a cultural way of existing in other places. We see forced prostitution. So we also know this as um, sex trafficking. And I actually prefer um, sex trafficking because there are differences in prostitution and sex work um, and trafficking, really. So, and that is just um, being forced into sex labor, which often is attached to abuse. And it is often um, attached to harm. And we see. Um, sex trafficking often being targeted populations of uh, individuals who are at higher risk. So we see young girls being trafficked oftentimes or um, and young boys. Again, you know, like I, I can't really emphasize enough just the importance of like this is the conversation we're discussing, but it is not um, completely inclusive of the full narrative here. So just keep that in mind. There are so many ways that we experience um, violence against women and that changes for trans women and that changes for trans women of color and that changes for um, non-binary persons. Um, all of these things really, uh, there are ways in which they are exacerbated. And so just keep that in mind. Um, and, and then we really talk uh, you know, there's this culture of misogyny, right? So um, if you aren't familiar, misogyny simply refers specifically to like the hatred of women. Um, so the ways, the ways that we see hatred, dislike, disdain um, harbored by men towards women. It is a big thing. We often see this in the workplace. We see this uh, in other in other spaces, right, in um, sports, different cultures, so uh, in spaces, so just be mindful. And again, as we continue, this next little section is less than ideal, and it's not either one of our favorites or anyone's favorite, but it is still important to discuss. So um, Matt, can you just talk to us a little bit um, in, in continuing this dialogue against about violence against women? Uh, and kind of address uh, rape as we know where we are now. Yeah, there's a huge discussion out there about what rape is. It's really anytime anybody says no, if you continue, that's rape. Men were not taught more often than not that no means no. And we will continue to push our boundaries. But Nearly 25% of women say they have been forced into a sexual encounter. 
but only 3% of men actually acknowledge having coercive sex. When I say coercive sex, again, that's anything from uh, either party being too drunk enough or on drugs uh, too inebriated to completely say yes. And really, one thing that's not talked about is how college campuses are prime location for this sexual violence and rape culture to continue. Uh, we see with so many men and women, and of course, not transgender people and non-binary people all coming together and being adults, really for the first time in their life and being able to do just about whatever they want. People do some really stupid and hurtful stuff, right? So college campuses are really this breeding ground for sexual violence and discontinuation of rape culture. NAU, as an example, has a massive number of sexual assaults a year, yet that is never talked about. Uh, one of NAU's dirtiest secrets is that it has so much sexual violence and rape that happen on its campus every year. Um, is there anything you want to add to that, Horizon? Uh, yeah, I think a couple of things, you know. Yeah, this is one of those subjects that is really just hard to navigate, period. And I think I, I'd like to expand a little bit um, and, and your definition that we have is like anytime, you know, and some of this language is like, no means no, right? Like students and people have created like a playful culture and a playful nature surrounding like no means no, um, and what consent is. Uh, but Matt, one, I think you draw a really good point of chorus of being really pushing yourself upon another person in any way where they um, aren't in the right mindset to consent. So if they are drunk, they cannot consent. If they are high, they cannot consent. If they are of, if they are lacking any level of mental capacity to uh, allow their yes to be yes, um, it is not consent. And I think, you know, the line is a little blurred in that, um, in that like rape is uh, sexual intercourse specifically right so matt has touched on rape we've touched a little bit on uh, sexual assault and we've touched a little bit on sexual harassment right so sexual harassment is often we often can identify as those those points of language where you know you might say like damn girl i you know or just inappropriate remarks towards a person regarding their uh, physical attaching like sexual connotation or sexual attributes in a conversation that harassment piece being um, unwanted physical touch so kissing someone grabbing someone inappropriately etc and then rape being violent right rape is violent um, rape being uh, penetration forced penetration Right. Rape isn't sex. Rape is rape. So the lines are clear simultaneously, not very clear. Um, and I think, you know, as you touch on sexual violence and rape culture is big. It is huge. There are unspoken monsters everywhere, right? In colleges, we see it in 
um, in workspaces. And so while, you know, like Matt can touch on like one thing about a specific university, like we can probably pull that from a lot of universities uh, and the implementation in which schools take to eliminate these acts um, as well as in the workplace. So I think those are just a couple of things uh, to bring clarity to. And then let's talk about something yeah, a little so more upbeat, if you don't mind. Yeah. How about feminist I, theory? I love <laughs> feminist theory. Um, I do want to say I am a pretty radical feminist myself. Uh, I know my classes know this, but I just want to make sure your class does as well. Uh, but what is feminist theory? Uh, yeah. So we want to talk briefly about um, feminist theory. So a couple of things. I know for myself, my students and I have had this discussion in class uh, where I asked them um, when they thought of feminism, what came to their mind? And their answers vary, but a lot of them really did come to the conclusion that it wasn't necessarily just about women, but that it was about um, equality for all. And then there, you can dive into the discussion in the wormhole about what equality for all means. So just a couple of things to keep in mind. An activist uh, for feminist theory, it's an activist approach that sees inequality as a systematic wrong that must be challenged. Uh, and so today we see feminist theory, or as I might refer to it as fem theory, it's used to explain inequality in many social institutions and concerns aside from those explicitly dealing with gender. So it's not just about men versus women. It is more than that. Uh, so many versions, however, of femme theory don't agree with each other. And we hear a lot about what um, different types of feminist theory, or we don't actually, like there's a chance that if you're not actively in a field that directly really talks about this, maybe you don't know. But so just some um, types of fem theory include liberal feminism, radical feminism, black feminism, um, postmodern feminism, and uh, something that I feel like is is newer to this dialogue of lipstick feminism. Um, so these are really um, the way the major forms of feminist theory, which vary. But oftentimes, like we can acknowledge that throughout them all, we can note that these forms of theory all have this, this commonality in mind, which is equality, right? Fighting for equal pay, equal opportunity, yeah, equal knowledge of existence. Um, so that's really it. And I... Uh, for sake of time, I'm not going to go into these specifically. I know your book talks about it. So be sure to review the definitions and the main concepts of each of them. So Matt, can you talk just a little bit about gender identity for us? But anyways, Matt, can you talk to us a little bit about gender identity? Yeah. So when we think of gender identity, really all of these different types of feminist theories talk about it. But what a gender identity really is, is a deeply held internal perception of gender. Uh, it's not whether you're male or female or uh, transgender. It's how you feel about uh, what gender you are. So it's this deep internal perception. 
uh, I do want to talk a little bit about gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is this idea that our internal gender identity does not does not match the sex that we were assigned at birth, right? So we often hear, oh, my baby's a boy, my baby's a girl, right? That's the sex we assigned at their birth. Uh, and gender dysphoria is this idea that maybe whatever sex you were assigned is not how you really feel. And there's a two major, uh, when it comes to gender, we hear cisgender, which is what really most people are. Most people are cisgendered, meaning that their sex assigned at birth matches their gender identity, right? So we don't have this gender dysphoria that I was just talking about. A lot of people tend to describe transgender people as people with this gender dysphoria. And when I'm saying transgender, I'm using it as a catch-all term, okay? So this includes uh, transsexual people, uh, some non-binary people, and of course, who we consider transgender people. But it's really that their sex assigned at birth and their gender identity don't necessarily match. Yeah, Matt, I think you make a really good point about gender identity uh, that is worth keeping in perspective. And feel free to continue this conversation, this dialogue. This might, uh, I know for my students and even for yours, in our 321 model to continue this conversation there in your reflections in the future. So, and with that, um, we are going to fly through global inequality. Um, I know that this this podcast, this episode is lecture heavy towards gender inequality because there's so much we can continue to talk about, but global inequality is also important. Uh, and so Matt, why don't we just dive into that? Yeah, so we're going to use um, not your regular classification. We're going to talk about uh, global inequality, and really what we need to talk about is the classification of different countries. We're not going to use your typical first, second, third world countries. Instead, we're going to use this idea of core and periphery countries. Okay, When I say core countries, I mean these are the dominant capitalist countries, the ones who really have the control over most of the world's wealth. They have most of the world's resources. These are the ones who have the most power, right? So they're dominant. And then we have periphery countries where there's little industry and they are exploited by the core. Remember, um, this is a lot about power. So uh, the core does dominate the periphery. And of course, there's also, it's not just this black and white core periphery, but there's also semi-periphery in here, which is our major source of raw materials. Okay, mm -hmm. so we go, core countries such as the United States, go there and extract the raw material from these semi-periphery countries and tend to export them to periphery countries so that they can create the products that are then sold in core countries. But these semi-periphery countries also allow a higher standard of living than the periphery countries. When I'm saying this, I mean that 
they are a tiny bit richer than periphery countries, but they're definitely not strong enough to challenge the core countries in any way. Mm. And I do want to say, theoretically, these are all dynamic countries, but they tend to stay where they are. Theoretically, a periphery country could become a core country, but more often than not, that that's not the case because of exploitation and the cyclical na- uh, nature of domination. Uh, Horizon, do you want to talk about this idea of the East and the West? Yeah, absolutely. And I think just really quickly, you know, as Matt said, in using core, periphery, semi-periphery, really it is to, when you think about first world, second world, third world, one of the, one of the things that becomes problematic with this language is that there's an assumption that other countries aren't a part of our world, uh, that we exist completely separately when Uh, As you can see in Matt's explanation of these core periphery, semi-periphery, is that our existence is very much reliant. Core core countries are reliant on the periphery and the semi-periphery and uh, vice versa. So just keep that in mind. There is a reason we use this language opposed to what uh, for so long we have considered to be um, quote-unquote politically correct. So just be mindful of that. In terms of East and West dichotomy, um, we really see a couple of things here. Uh, So just in considering the West, right? Um, What we recognize, and again, majority not inclusive, we see the West painted to be democratic, uh, rational, so very much uh, science-based and more secular, uh, focused on the individual Uh, internalizing our existence being about the self and not others. It's more modern. It is free, which is uh, true and false, right? So yes, overall, it is free, but we can get into conversations about the ways in which the West isn't necessarily uh, free. So being progressive, this forward um, motion, equality, again, not being the same, uh, and existing uh, while it's there and while that is the what we know, it's not necessarily completely true. Uh, and then it is also guilt-based, right? Um, so, but in comparison, right? So if the West has all of these things, uh, there is the opposite that is going to exist for the East. Uh, authoritarian, very religious, backward, collectivist, and... Um, the East being chained, right? So that opposite of free um, being chained, conservative versus progressive, there's an order. So that hierarchical um, expectation of everyone has a place. Uh, And then it is very much shame-based, right? So there are those ideas of uh, honor societies that exist. So that's just a brief overview of this dichotomy that we see versus East and Western culture globally. So Matt, colonialism, imperialism, talk to me. Yeah, I I just want to make a real quick clarification with this East and West dichotomy. It's that those who are considered the East, this isn't always how they actually are. 
these are how they are painted and how we as uh, people in the West tend to see them, right? So if we see some a place that is, say, authoritarian or religious, we can use that as a justification for this colonial colonialism and imperialism that I'm about to talk about, right? So I do want to say that neither Horizon nor I do actually see the West and the East as these, but instead they have been painted this way throughout literature for, I would say, the past three, four hundred years. Yeah, right? absolutely. Since really the beginning of Europe. And yeah. But so I'll move on to what colonialism is. Colonialism is the political control of another country done through force. This is the version where there's actually boots on the ground. So this is where we see actual military intervention. And this is done to take resources such as oil and diamonds. And it's also done to fill the markets with the colonizer's goods. So we extract resources from a colonized place, make a product, and then sell it back to them. So there's kind of that double uh, exploitation there. Mm -hmm. And this is slightly different than imperialism, which is just extending political or cultural rule over another country to gain power. This isn't a military intervention, but as much as I'm trying to impose my culture to a different one. So we want you to think like us. We want you to be like us. And this isn't something that's just in the past, right? Countries around the world today are still feeling these wounds. We can see this especially here in the United States with Native Americans. Uh, we see centuries, really three, four hundred years of broken treaties. Uh, the United States has given multiple uh, treaties with Native Americans, but we have broken those over and over and over again. We've also committed genocide against these Native Americans. So we've killed a massive amount of them. And we've forced them to relocate. The idea of reservations, this is after 400 years of the United States pushing and pushing Native Americans onto different lands. We're forcing them to relocate. This is one perfect example of how the U.S. is a colonizing country and how we have to spend probably the next couple hundred years trying to rebuild that relationship with the Native American population. Horizon, do you want to talk a little bit about the idea of outsourcing and how we're seeing that all across the U.S. today? Yeah, right. So uh, this idea of outsourcing really is just that industries move out of the core, right? So Matt talked about this and into the periphery. Uh, it's cheaper to do business. There are less regulations um, with lower wages. So example, Walmart core moving into the periphery to do business. The goods that are sold at Walmart can be made in core countries 
but it's cheaper to make them in other countries. It's beneficial for periphery nations to take on that financial production. However, because of the lower regulations and the lower wages, then we enter into this issue of work labor and labor forces and the treatment of humans. Uh, So, but that is really just a quick example of what that looks like uh, practically. So yeah, Matt, how about outsourcing the patriarchy? Yeah. So not only do we outsource work to periphery countries, but a scholar uh, Gravel argued that we also outsource our patriarchy, where the West has used the patriarchy as a justification for colonial and imperial acts. We see another country and we say, oh, they are living in a patriarchy. Their women are being subjugated. They're being treated as less than. We need to go there and fix their system because they are treating their woman badly. Okay, we we do see this, right? Uh, we've seen this in the Middle East quite a bit over the past 20 years. However, this is extremely problematic because it ignores our own patriarchy. By saying, hey, let's go fix their country, it's ignoring the patriarchy here in the United States. Mm. It's saying we as a country are fixed. We don't have a patriarchy in the U.S. Yeah. And so this is that idea that we need everybody else to be like us because we are fixed. The West is perfect, whereas everybody else is flawed. And this is a terrible thing. And one of my favorite quotes, I don't actually remember who said it anymore, but it's this idea that we are saving brown women from brown men, Mm. right? It's the white man's burden to save the brown woman from the brown man. And this is extremely problematic. Yeah, absolutely. And I, this is my religious studies background, I guess you could say. Yeah. Coming into play. Yeah. Matt really, really loves studying religion. Maybe sometime we can talk more about that. It's a really interesting thing watching him really dive into uh, this area um, throughout grad school and even still today as he gets to do his own studying. It's like Matt's nerd wallet. Like this is the stuff that's like hidden in his back pocket uh, and then just kind of comes out at random times. So um, Matt, talk to us about your little religious tokens of knowledge today. This may seem a little out in left field, especially with what we've been talking about today, but it's really important to talk about, especially since we're combining global inequality and gender inequality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I really want to talk about the hijab and the veil. For those who don't know, the hijab and the veil, there's Islamic pieces of clothing that women wear over their heads and their faces. And they're often held in the West as these kind of tokens of this patriarchy, right? Mm. We see that, oh, women are oppressed so much that they have to cover their heads in other countries. But that's not always the case. 
uh, there is this massive amount of scholarship that's out there that kind of talks about how this hijab and the veil aren't always oppressive things. Instead, mm-hmm. some scholars and some women see it as an outward reflection of an inner desire. We see that they want, they use this hijab and the veil to be close to God. When I was, just side story real quick, when I was growing up, I saw uh, my dad and my stepmom getting married and they were, the pastor was talking about his wedding ring and how his wedding ring is an outward reflection of the love he has for his wife. So it's an outward reflection of an inner desire of this inner message. So for some Islamic women, the hijab is that same kind of idea. And we have to remember that these women who are wearing it are able to make their own decisions. In sociology and especially in critical theoretical frameworks, we call this agency. So these women have agency. And this hijab in the veil is a way of actively working towards shyness. Shyness is kind of a weird idea to us Westerners that why would somebody want to work to be shy, right? Why would, mm. why would somebody want to work to be reserved? Uh, why would they actively work to do this? Uh, but again, Uh, One of the Islamic uh, tenets is shyness for women. And by wearing and practicing the hijab and bailing, they're practicing it just like a master pianist would uh, practice for hours and hours playing the piano in order to become this better person, better pianist. Or like Matt, he practices for hours in front of his mirror before he lectures his students because he wants to be a master at it. I thought I was the one who has jokes. Uh, Um, Speaking of that, I actually do have a really good joke for you, Horizon. All right. What is it, Matt? I'm sitting here on my computer and... uh, I'm using this mouse and it's being so sensitive. I just had to ask, what are you? Are you just a straight white guy being asked to admit that the system benefits you? (laughs) That is my joke for the week, folks. I really hope. I'm sorry that this episode was so long, but I think we did a lot of great information here. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so (laughs) we're going to close up. But one thing that makes me just slightly funnier than Matt is that I will tell a joke and then I really sometimes feel like I have this inclination (laughs) to explain said joke. I'm going to refrain today. Um, I am hilarious. Thank (laughs) you very much. At least my mom tells me so. (laughs) Yeah, um, Matt has a great mom. So with that, though, again, you all thank you so much for your patience and for doing the hard work here in listening to a subject matter that is a little more difficult to navigate. Um, We hope that the information has been informative for you 
And as we navigate the additional lockdowns in Washington and in Arizona, uh, that you would remember that you are completely capable of navigating this time well, of navigating your classwork well, um, and all that is in front of you. Um, remember to have grace for yourself. Remember to socially distance with those you can. Show up for friends if you can. Drop that roll of TP on their front porch and play ding dong ditch. It's fine. They'll be eternally grateful. Um, but until next time, drink good coffee, listen to cool tunes, uh, and keep on keeping on. Absolutely. And be freaking curious.